Well, good morning. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you this morning, preaching out of God's Word. Uh, in the event that you just got some coffee, sat down, and heard Gary from uh, reading from Scripture, we're going to find ourselves in Galatians 1, 11 to 24. In case you weren't here last week, we began a new series through the book of Galatians. Uh, we're going to be here through about uh, December, and uh, we've titled it No Other Gospel because we want to focus in on the centrality of the person and work of Jesus, that this is where ultimately the good news comes from. I'd like to begin our time by, by as you're opening or loading your Bibles, uh, just a couple, giving you a couple of reminders. Uh, the first one is that if you're new, we have Connect cards for you. We'd love to hang out with you, take you out to lunch, dinner, coffee. You make the call, we'll make it happen. Uh, drop one, uh, a Connect card in the back offering, or excuse me, in the Connect desk in the back. And if you don't have a Bible with you or you know someone who would benefit from having one, hook them up. We also have that as gifts for you. Other than that, I want to begin our time with something that we're not always excited to think about, and I want to launch right in because we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. As you have your Bibles open to Galatians 1, just have some of those uh, fingers ready to go because we're going to flip through several pages of Scripture this morning. Nevertheless, I, I want to begin with something that's not so exciting to think about or particularly something that we generally consider, and that is our past. Already people are uncomfortable. For a moment, I want you to consider and remember your past. I want you to think about who you were before you knew Jesus. For many of you, as you begin to consider your past, there is a guilt and shame associated with the way in which you lived, the decisions that you made, or simply the hardness of your heart toward the Lord and others. Even as a follower of Jesus, one who has been redeemed, one who has been purchased, one who has been made new, some of you still carry guilt and shame. And as a result, two things generally happen. On one hand, you believe that this is simply what your life will be. One that is filled with guilt, shame, and anger. And they're just going to be a part of your life, leaving you spiritually disheartened and apathetic. On the other hand, some of you may genuinely hate that you carry this guilt and shame, and it wears on you. It wears on your bones, on your heart, on your soul, and you really want to do whatever it is you really need to do to get rid of it. But in the end, you find yourself spiritually exhausted. There's one thing that these two options or paths have in common, 
and that is that they both lack good news. That they both have forgotten good news. That is, the good news of the gospel. After all, that is what the word gospel means. It means good news. In the time of kings, when they had an important message, they would delegate that message to someone called a herald. And the herald would travel into the city or the town or the village and proclaim the good news of the king for all to hear and receive. Well, Jesus, who is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, has given us good news through heralds such as pastors and preachers and teachers so that we would receive and pass this good news on to one another and to those who don't know him. And in the event that you have forgotten today, this week, or in general, the good news is this, that even as you were spiritually dead in your sin with a hardened and deceptive heart, God called you to himself by his grace in sending his son who lived a sinless life, died a death in your place for your sin, purchasing you out of your slavery to the bondage of your sin. Resurrected from the dead by the Holy Spirit, conquering sin, Satan, and demons, and reconciling you to the Father, making you new. Praise be to his name. Everyone loves good news because everyone is in need of good news. The question of this news, and the question for you, Christian, is Jesus the hero of that good news? Is Jesus the hero of that good news, of your story? Entire movies are shaped around the story and glory of superheroes developing their character and the conflict they find themselves in. And often as the movie progresses, you see them rushing into the sound of violence, harm, and attack. And at the end of the movie, it's as it should be. The hero is praised. The hero is the center of these people's story. Who is the hero of your story? Is it Jesus? Or would you like to think it's Jesus, but in reality you're in stiff competition with him? As we look at Galatians 1, 11 to 24 this morning, we're going to examine an overview of the Apostle Paul's testimony to the Galatians. And if you remember from last week, those who were attempting to persuade the Galatians to add to their faith were accusing Paul of preaching a half gospel, saying that the grace he speaks about was, man, was meant to make them feel good, but in the end was incomplete. Paul's testimony is his way of responding to their claims by saying this is the entirety of the gospel and what you suggest is a false gospel. Ultimately, what we will encounter from God through Paul's story is, here's the main idea, is that the very nature of the gospel is that Jesus saves sinners. 
sinners who are unable to outsin his grace, making Jesus the hero of the saints. So let me pray. And like I said, we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. So I, have, I hope you have your Bibles ready to go. Let me pray and then we'll get started. God, my simple prayer is that we would approach you in your word with humility in our hearts and anticipation to hear from you and confidence in the Lord Jesus. Whatever we don't know, God, may you reveal it to us this morning by your spirit. And whatever we do know, may we submit it to you with praise and thanksgiving to you for our good and your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to look at verses 11 to 24. And as we begin, we're going to break this section down into three parts. All right, trying to keep it clean. We're going to break it down in grace resisted, grace received, and finally grace glorified. We're going to begin with grace resisted. This is in verses 11 through 15. 14, I'm sorry. Verses 11 of 14. When you begin looking at 11 through 12, you're going to notice that it is a continuation of Paul's argument from last week. It is a continuation that provides us with three nuances of the gospel. That's what Paul wants to immediately showcase for the Galatians and ultimately for you and I. And so here are the three nuances. Paul's going to present this with the reminder of the gospel, the nature of the gospel, and the reception of the gospel. Beginning with the first, the first thing that Paul notes is that the gospel he received was not man's gospel. Look at verse 11, and the word for shows a transition. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. He says something similar in verse 12. I did not receive it from any man. What Paul is saying is that this gospel, this message of salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, wasn't just, it wasn't something I was taught. It wasn't something that was just brought up or concocted by man. I received it directly from Jesus. Now that's a reminder that you and I have to sit in, that this gospel that we have received through faith in Christ is one that was directly from him as he revealed it to us in his word. Now the reason I wanted to park on this for a little bit is because I want you to consider something, that apart from the work of regeneration, let's look at some common sense concerning the message of the gospel. Because anybody could say that, I received this message from God himself. I received this gospel from Jesus. And so in so doing, Paul is making a point, essentially saying that there's no benefit when it comes to me personally turning to Christianity. It's as if Paul was saying, think about it. Do you really think that a bunch of people got together, and when we got together, when they got together, they said, you know what? You know how we're going to get to heaven? Check it. We're all sinners. Hell is hot, and forever is a long time, and we need Jesus. Hey, that's what we're going to preach and proclaim. 
Paul is ultimately saying there, there is, he had no benefit in turning to Christianity. He says this in, he says it this way in verses 13 and 14, how he persecuted the church violently. And then in verse 14, advancing in Judaism, extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. It's like I had no There was no benefit to me turning towards Christianity. In addition to that, when we consider the life of the apostles, what was the benefit? Because if I remember correctly, all of them, with the exception of John, were martyred. To preach that kind of a message should have some kind of a benefit. That's why Paul says, hey, this message wasn't developed by man. It was one from God. Secondly, Paul notes the nature of the gospel in 11 through 12. That is that the gospel in its entirety is centered in and around what? Moralism? Tradition? Good works? Your intellect? No, it is centered in and around the person and work of Jesus who saves sinners. The nature of the gospel is not that it is a message of good advice, but good news that brings life. That is the nature of the gospel. A new life that is received and centered around Jesus. That is what makes the gospel so distinct among other philosophies and religions and ideologies. It is Jesus. And the very nature of the gospel is that Jesus saves sinners. Thirdly, Paul notes the reception of the gospel. That the good news of Jesus' saving work for sinners is one that he received. He says and uses this word twice in 11 and 12. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive, I did not receive the gospel from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it. In other words, and we'll see this a little bit more momentarily, It wasn't intelligence or zeal that Paul lacked. Rather, it was that at one point, his heart was hardened. And through the Holy Spirit, his heart was softened and his ears were opened so that he would receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in verses 11 and 12, very briefly, he gives us the reminder of the gospel, the nature of the gospel, and the reception of the gospel. As we move into verses 13 and 14, 11 and 12 set us up for everything else. Because in beginning in, in verse 13, Paul goes on to emphasize that the gospel he received from Jesus Christ couldn't have been him making it up, as something we looked at a while ago. And the reason it couldn't have been him making this message up is because there was nothing in Paul's life to show that he was or would even become a Christian. There was nothing in his life that showed that. Briefly, let's look at verse 13. 
For you have heard of my former life, that is who I was before I knew Jesus, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. The word destroy is better described as extinguish. Like this wasn't an argument that he had against a certain people. He wanted to get rid of the church. And we see this played out in, uh, in Acts. For instance, in Acts 7, we see Paul's presence toward the execution and stoning of Stephen, who was a deacon in the early church. In Acts 3, we see that Paul is ravaging homes and pulling Christians out of their homes and seeing them persecuted, thrown in jail, and killed. In the opening verses of Acts 9, Paul is headed to Damascus, and everybody loves the story of him on the road to Damascus, but the purpose of him going to Damascus was so that he would find Christians in their homes, take them out, drag them to Jerusalem, and throw them in prison, ultimately seeing them executed. His goal was to extinguish the church. Among many of the tragic events that have conspired, or transpired, excuse me, over the last couple of weeks in Afghanistan. One stands out among many. And you may have seen it. Some people reposted it online. Some people even wrote about it. But it was concerning the church in Afghanistan. That several people and leaders within the church in Afghanistan decided to stay in Afghanistan to protect families and individuals and continue to care for uh, members of their church. And from what I understand, this church, the church in Afghanistan, had some connection to uh, a few pastors here in the United States. And on one evening, one of the members of the, of the church called uh, a pastor here in the States, to let them know that the Taliban had found them and they found out where they were. And they wanted to let them know, they wanted to reassure the American pastors that they have heard their prayers and they are or were at peace with whatever would come their way. In addition to that, they were very encouraged because according to this one individual, they noted that even the children said, we will not deny Jesus. On that same phone call, members of the Taliban entered the home and murdered everyone in that home. That's who Paul was. That's what Paul did. Kind of hits home. There was nothing in his life to show that Christianity would be a benefit or that he would even become a Christian. Additionally, Paul tells us briefly about his life. Verse 14, that not only was he persecuting the church, but that he was advancing in Judaism. You got to remember Paul was not just smart, but a genius. This guy was like the Doogie Hauser of his day. Some of you don't even know who that is. Doesn't even matter. You just need to know 
Homeboy was like Doogie Howser. Doogie Howser was this character on Doogie Howser, right? And he was a 14-year-old licensed doctor, right? You hear about those stories. 10-year-olds who are just incredibly intelligent and they make it to Harvard by the time they're 12 and they have a PhD by the time they're 16, right? That's who Paul was. And once more, the reason he's bringing all of this up is because he's arguing that there was no benefit, there was no platform for him to turn to Christianity other than death. Paul, in saying that he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of uh, my own age among my people, he says, people who were my leaders and teachers, I advanced beyond them. I wasn't just smarter. I moved further ahead than they were. To the Philippians, Paul gives a brief resume. This is Philippians 1, 4 through 6. Paul writes, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, apart from Jesus, you really think you're accomplished? I am more accomplished apart from Jesus. And he hooks him up with his resume. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul lays his resume out before the Philippians and once more, as we consider Galatians 1, he is arguing, what was the benefit? What platform? Because that's what they were ultimately arguing about toward Paul. No, he's just preaching this grace because he wants to elevate his status. And Paul is saying, what status? I had the status. If you want to consider the ladder of success, I passed people who were the higher ups. I became the CEO of the CEO. Additionally, Paul goes on to say in verse 14 of my own age, my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. His affection wasn't for Jesus. It was for tradition and moralism and the law. And rather than those things revealing his need for Jesus, they are what he considered gospel. Jesus speaks to these individuals in Matthew 23 saying this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel." Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean." Paul is saying, man, I was worried about, I was the most religious person you can think about. Everything about me on the outside would argue that I was in the right. And so here's what you and I need to know. You can be intelligent just like Paul was and know absolutely nothing. You can be sincere 
just like Paul was. He says, I was extremely zealous. Ain't nothing wrong with that. You can be extremely sincere, just like Paul, and still be a savage. You can be convinced, just like Paul, and lack conviction. Paul was not ignorant. Paul was very well informed, but he was not internally transformed. Commentator Timothy George says this, Paul's point in Galatians is not that he was opposed to or ignorant of Christian tradition, but simply that he was not dependent upon it for his knowledge of Christ. Paul was running as far and as fast as he could from God through rebellion, resistance, and refusal. Doing what he thought was right and true and noble. And that's the irony. That the church that he knew about from the scriptures that he memorized as Paul, or excuse me, as God was calling people into his covenant community are the same people Paul wants to extinguish. Though he thought what he was doing was right and true and noble in reality, he was sinning against God. The purpose of Paul's story here in this first few verses was not to highlight himself or for this story to serve as a war story. Listen, Christians do this all of the time, and you may do this, and this is dumb, and if you do this, it is dumb where you talk about your story, your testimony, and you treat your sin or your previous experience like it's some war story. Check out what I did. This is who I was. Look at what I did. Paul's point is to reveal not just his resistance to God's grace, but to show his great sorrow and grief. When you consider your story, is it more of a war story? Or is there grief and sorrow accompanied in your story? I've had Christians tell me their story, and it looks like they were saved by faith and theology. It shows me that they were saved by faith in moralism or getting it right that they were saved by faith in, man, I just decided that one good. Look at all the things I used to do. It was in my youth. Paul is emphasizing his resistance toward the grace of God through rebellion against God. How can this dude ever be a Christian? Paul's story was not one of ignorance. It was not one where he lacked intelligence. It was not one of insincerity. It was not one where he lacked being convinced or where he lacked zeal. Rather, Paul's heart was hardened and not transformed internally. Paul didn't need to be tweaked. He needed to be transformed. And so let's look at grace received. This is verses 15 to 21. 
Here's a, a funny word. Verse 15 opens up with a funny word, I think, maybe. So serious right now. Um, verse 15 opens up with a funny word where uh, preachers like myself will laugh. <laughs> I did earlier. Anyway, and, uh, and the word is this. Uh, the word is but. <laughs> it's verse 15. It's a funny word, but it's a powerful word. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, thank God for all of the butts in the Bible. <laughs> See? Anyway. Here's why that word matters. Andrew's uncomfortable. <laughs> anyway. Here's why that word matters. When you consider verses 11 and 14 and who Paul was, the reason this word is so powerful is because Paul didn't remain the same. The word but refers to a transition. It refers to his experience with God. In Acts 9, 3 through 6, here's what we see. Now as he went on his way, that is Paul, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. I'll tell you a couple of things. That word, that little word, that transition, refers to a change in the life and heart of Paul. It wasn't just new behavior, it was a new trajectory. And it was here in Acts 9 where grace was no longer resisted because he was unable to. Rather, now he had to receive God's grace through faith in Jesus. You'll notice in verse 4, as he hears a voice, that Saul, Saul. And oftentimes many Christians are like, look at his transformation. He went from Saul to Paul. Paul is just the Greek version of his name. It's the same dude. So please don't be like, look at the transformation. No. Okay? No. Anyway. Paul begins to express, I didn't remain the same. And he expresses his conversion process that we all share to the Galatians. So beginning in verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, before the foundation of the world, God had set Paul apart. That in light of all the resisting he would do, in light of all the education he would do, Paul was set apart. And at that moment, God's grace could no longer be resisted, but received Number two, Paul says, and who called me by his grace and was pleased to reveal his son to me. Paul was called. Now, this isn't the way this word called. This isn't the way we normally think of it. I think in the church, oftentimes we hyper-spiritualize that word. Is God calling me to this? Is God going to call me to that? Am I called to serve in kids ministry? Right? Like all of these, you're just using hyper-spiritual language to suggest you don't want to do it, right? And so uh, <laughs> with that being said, when we look at the New Testament, that's, that's not the way in which this word is, is used. 
It is rather a literal calling, one that demands a response, right? One that has a response. And Paul says, or Paul shows us, well, how is it that God calls us? He calls us by his grace. And what does he do when he calls us by his grace? He reveals to us his son. The word call here is the same word that we see Jesus use when he brings Lazarus from death to life. Because we got time. This is John eleven, thirty-eight to 44. Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. This is after Lazarus has died. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, that is Lazarus, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so as they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes, he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. That is what Paul means when he says that he was called, that he was dead in his sin. That's Ephesians 2.1. That we were dead in our sin. And when Jesus called, he called us out of our death, out of our spiritual death and into life. The same word that is used in John 11 is used here in Galatians 1. That Jesus is the one who calls us. And so when he called you out of your dead sin, he brought you into being spiritually alive. He has transferred you from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his light. Now here's what I love. It doesn't, it doesn't end there. Though I hope that's encouraging to you, but it doesn't end there. Paul continues. Verse 16. He was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. There's a lot happening there. To begin, the same people that Paul was persecuting, now he was going to go and preach Jesus to them. That he was going to preach faith in, repentance in Jesus. What this means for you and I is that when we look at the example of Paul, Paul wasn't just left there. He wasn't just left frozen, that he was called and then he was frozen, right? Some nerds called out the frozen chosen, they're dumb, okay? You hear them say that, call them dumb, right? They weren't just left there. Rather, he, like you and I, were given a purpose. Now, this is where everybody's ears perk. Oh man, what's my purpose? Tell me, Lord, what is your will for my life? We'll get to that. He wasn't just left there. 
God didn't just do him a solid. He called him out of spiritual death into spiritual light, gives him a purpose to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But in addition to that, not only was he not just left there, he wasn't also given this license to sin that just because he was forgiven, he could do whatever it is he wanted to do. See, some of you think that. Some of you are down with the set apart. Some of you are down with the being called. And when you consider God's grace, when you receive God's grace, you're like, yeah, cool, now I can do these things, and he's going to forgive me anyway. Right? Paul to the Romans, monster epistle, says, should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? By no means. Upon being called, going from spiritual death to spiritual life, your heart, Christian, was hardened. It was a stone. And He has given you a heart of flesh. And He has poured His Spirit into you. You have been made new. You have been transformed. So he wasn't just left, he wasn't left frozen. He wasn't given a license to sin, but to seek and preach Jesus because his life had now been transformed. Not tweaked, transformed. He has given you and I a purpose. And this is where people's ears perk. Well, what's my purpose? And oftentimes, it is a question of curiosity, genuine curiosity. Other times, it's really just individuals being self-centered. But here's the answer. Hope you got your pens out. Twitter ready to go. Here's your purpose. To glorify God wherever you are and in whatever you are doing. That is your purpose. You stay-at-home parent, you will glorify God where you are and whatever it is you're doing with your children, raising them up. You're a teacher, how you serve your students and interact with your coworkers. You're a student, how you honor your friends and your teachers. You're a business owner, your employees. You're a spouse to your other spouse. Your purpose is to glorify God wherever you are and in whatever you do. Continuing in verse 16. He's pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him, that is Jesus, among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem right away. Instead, he went to Arabia and then returned to Damascus. A lot of stuff happening here. Paul was set apart, Paul was called, Paul was given a purpose, and what did he do? Homeboy wasted no time. He went to proclaim and practice the grace in which he received. When he says, I didn't go see the apostles right away, he's not saying, I don't respect them. I didn't need to talk to them because I'm cool or better than them. What he is saying is, I didn't need to go talk to them right away because my validity literally came from Jesus himself. And so Paul embodies 
what Peter tells several churches. This is 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You are a royal priesthood that you have access with God. You have access to God. You can interact with God. A holy nation, a people for his own possession. Check it. Here we go, because I don't think it's on the screen, so you just get to listen. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, there's that word again, called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's who you are now, and you got a purpose. Not there, I guess. Right? Don't overthink it. Glorify God wherever you are and whatever it is that you are doing. Nonetheless, Paul goes to preach to the Gentiles, doesn't visit the apostles right away. Instead, he travels to Arabia. Why Arabia? There's a lot of speculation as to why he went there. One of the things, when you look at it geographically, it's like the wilderness. It's kind of out there. There's no how can I say it? Coincidence. We talked about providence this summer. There's no coincidence that God uses the wilderness to sanctify his people. What was Israel's experience when uh, God redeemed them in Exodus? They were in the wilderness. What about Jesus after being baptized at the start of his ministry? went into the wilderness. See, in the wilderness is where God speaks to us through his word. Why that's so hard, I think, is because too many of us want the emotional fix. They want the spiritual high, the mountaintop experience. I just want to keep feeling those things rather than No one wants to hear from God in silence and in solitude. Look at the text. This is the beginning of verse 18. We're not done yet, but just look at the beginning of verse 18. Then after three years, Paul spent three years in the wilderness seeking God, listening to God, Silence, solitude, growing in his knowledge of God. Some of you can't go an hour without looking at your phone. And when we consider silence and solitude, it's like, yes, got it. Not that long, right? What would it actually look like if we considered... What if the wilderness, it's not like there's woods here, okay? Like, what if the wilderness was really just putting away distraction and genuinely, genuinely sitting in silence? Some of you may say, well, that gets me bored. Well, good. You need to be alone with your thoughts. Man, I'm just, all these things are going to come up. Good. You need to deal with them. You need to deal with them. You need to seek God in the wilderness. Moving along. 
Verse 18, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Now you're going to notice one thing. Paul is always giving like uh, specifics, right? I was here three years. I was with so-and-so 15 days. I was doing this for 14 years, so on and so forth. It's to give you an understanding of like Paul saying, I'm not going to get everything I need to get, but if you got questions, you know who to go and talk to, right? Continuing. <laughs> After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to, to, to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none other of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I write uh, before God, I do not lie. Man, I just want you to consider, could you imagine what those conversations would have been like? Paul going to Peter's house. Hey, bro, it's me again. Like, you can imagine part of it where Paul wants to hear about the life of Jesus from Peter. From James, who's his brother. But in addition to that, though that shows great humility, it also shows another kind of humility in where, could you imagine what Peter was thinking as Paul was coming up to his house? Three years ago, this guy killed my friends. Men and women that served in the church with me were killed and persecuted by this man. You wouldn't blame Peter if he had some trust issues. But it shows Paul's humility that the grace he received is the grace that he preached, but is also the grace that he practiced. And he walked in humility. And in verse 20 where he says, and what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. He's emphasizing, if you don't believe me, go talk to them. He's telling the Galatian churches that. If you don't believe what's happening, go and talk to them. Verse 21, then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia. Do you know what the capital of Sicilia is? It's Tarsus. Do you know where Paul was from? Tarsus. So after he hangs with Peter and James, he goes home. We don't know a lot, but based on his character from the rest of his epistles, he's a faithful apostle, preacher, and pastor. Verse 22 alludes to a little bit. He says, And when I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. When you go back to Acts 11, you gather that Paul went home to Tarsus and was there for about 10 years as a nobody. As a nobody. It wasn't until after that time period that when you visit Acts 11 that Barnabas finds him, brings him to Antioch, and then that is when they begin to help mature Christians at Antioch and plant churches. But pre everybody's down with Antioch. Previous to that, 10 years at home, preaching the gospel where he was. Oftentimes when we hear the story of Paul, everybody's like, man, I want to be like Paul. Look how intelligent he was. Look at the churches he planted. Look at the people he discipled. Look at how he's calling out all of these false teachers. For 10 years, he was just at home. He was a nobody. 
Some of you are so worried about, man, I don't know about McAllen. It's tropical weather. What is God doing here? I don't know what God is. He has you here for a purpose. Again, ears perk up. Your purpose is to glorify God wherever you are and whatever you're doing. For 10 years, he was a nobody. No epistles written. No churches planted. Just a faithful presence. A faithful presence from a dude who is an incredible sinner and saved by God's grace. Preaching to his neighbors and his friends. As we consider this section, Paul wasn't looking for God. But God rescued Paul. Paul showed no signs of ever becoming a Christian. But God redeemed Paul. This is what makes the doctrine of election so captivating. That all of us were running as far and as fast from the grace of God through rebellion and resistance. But by His grace... Jesus has saved you. Nothing done by you, but according to his mercy. Paul may have rebelled against God and resisted God, but when God rescues, we simply cannot outsin his grace. And finally, grace glorified, verses 22 to 24. Verses 22 to 24 highlight, this is where we see Paul was at home to the churches in Judea that are in Christ. And what we see here in these two verses is that Paul is growing in the Lord. He was stoked to preach the gospel and just be faithful to that. And so here are two things that we look at that we can draw from 22 to 24. Here's the first, Paul's character and reputation. See, Paul's reputation had been growing throughout the churches. People remembered and knew who he was, and now they saw him transformed by God's grace. Paul took ownership of his sin. You can read about it in Acts. You can see it in 2 Corinthians. He took ownership of who he was, and yet knowing that God had transformed him by his grace, he now walked in this same grace where he was. He says it this way in verse 23. They only were hearing it. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Remember, he's here 10 years. Walking in humility, walking in God's grace. Character matters. Character matters. The second thing is Jesus Jesus is the hero of Paul's story. Look at verse 24. And they glorified God because of me. See, the hero of Paul's story is not his intellect. It's not his travel experience. It's not even Peter and James, but Jesus. The people Paul would have persecuted are now praising God for his work in saving Paul. God's grace is glorified because it is only by God's grace that a sinner can become a saint. 
The good news of the gospel is that Jesus saves sinners by his grace and for his glory. And as a result of our internal transformation, that is the gift of a new heart, we cannot help but proclaim his excellencies like heralds. It is wonderful news. It is great news. It is good news. There was nothing in Paul's life, just like there was nothing in your life, to demonstrate even the most remote possibility that you would become a Christian. And that's the point. There was nothing that you can do other than rebel and resist against the grace of God until he called you to himself by his grace as he called Lazarus from death into life. So today, here's the thing, like this, this sermon, there isn't like, hey, how-tos. I got none of that. It's just you sitting in God's grace for you. So today, receive his grace for you. When you consider your past, whether that was before you met Jesus or maybe stupid decisions that you made this week, consider Jesus's grace for you. Listen, though consequences may follow, they do not disrupt your union with Christ. Receive His grace for you this morning. You do not, check it, you do not need to work for your salvation as Jesus has accomplished that for you through His life, His death, and resurrection. There is nothing to pay back. There is only thanksgiving as you walk in his grace. So as we close, Christian, is Jesus the hero of your story? Intellect isn't bad. But if you don't know Jesus through faith, then you may not know Jesus. Zeal is wonderful. But if you don't know Jesus through faith, then someone or something else is what you're zealous for. Do you carry guilt and shame? Jesus has nailed that. That has been nailed to the cross of Jesus. Paul, this same Paul, goes on to say, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Therefore, if you are burdened by guilt and shame, you can cast that burden onto the Lord. That word cast means to throw. You can throw these burdens upon the Lord. Are you surprised when Jesus saves people? Are you that person that's like, that person will never come to Christ? Are you surprised when Jesus saves people? Are you setting them up for ridiculous standards? You've got to meet these standards, then I'll know they're a Christian. That's what the Judaizers were trying to do to the Galatians. So as we close and you come before the Lord with an open heart, open mind, and you confess your sin before the Lord, sit in that grace. Sit in God's grace for you. Now, listen real quick. It's not that you confess and repent so that you would receive grace. It is that right now, as you sit, you are receiving 
God's grace for you. He is pouring his grace out to you right now as you sit. And as you go before him in confidence to confess and repent, that is more grace being poured out onto you. And as you turn and fix your eyes on the beauty and splendor of Jesus, that is ongoing grace being poured out onto you present time, right now, not as you figure it out, right now. And if you don't know Jesus, then what I want you to know is that you can come and know Jesus. For the time being, you are dead in your sin. You are spiritually dead and alienated from God. Yet, Jesus invites you to come and know him through faith and repentance. Trust in Jesus. Repent of your sin and step into his marvelous light this morning church, remember, the very nature of the gospel is that Jesus saves sinners. Sinners who are unable to out-sin his grace, making Jesus the hero of the saints. Let's pray. God, in your presence, we confess our sinfulness, our shortcomings, and our offenses against you. In your presence, we cast our burdens that our bones have grown so weary of before you. You alone know how often and how easily we wander from your ways, forgetting your grace, and forgetting your love for us in Jesus. Forgive us of our sin. And God, we ask that you would pour your grace out onto us this morning so that we may walk in your light and that we may walk in your ways for our good and for the glory of Christ. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.